It's good to be challenged by our little ones, isn't it? Be reminded of how important it is not only to memorize God's word and be able to share God's word, but also to serve God's people. And um, I hope we're, we're doing better at that. Um, and you feel encouraged, your, ch- your kids feel encouraged to, to participate in ministry, that, um, that every member of God's family can play a part. Every member of God's family is meant to be useful. And, and so regardless of how young or old you are, there is, a, there is a place for you to serve here in the body. Well, we've been stepping our way into uh, the holiday, into Christmas, remembering the, the first advent, the first coming of Christ, and reminding ourselves, what does Christ's mission look like? What, what will it seek to do? Well, what, what purposes will it seek to accomplish? And so we've been looking back at the Old Testament. We've been, we've been seeing these promises. We, the, the Bible refers to them as covenants. Promises that God has made to his people throughout history that give us an, an, uh, an, an evidence of, of, of what Christ will accomplish when he comes. What are the, the gospel things that will be true about Christ? What are the problems he will overcome And what are the things that he will introduce and make available to us because of the work of his son, Jesus? We've been looking at these promises, and last week we we looked at the promise that God gave to to the children of Israel. He he had just delivered them from bondage in Egypt. For 400 years they were captives there. And that, that captivity, that bondage, was an illustration of the bondage that we are to sin. And God, through his his prophet Moses, through the leadership of Moses, led them out of Egypt, led them to uh, this, this mountain, Mount Sinai, in this, this barren wasteland. The point of all of this, of course, was to lead them into a place where dependence on God was the only option. There was no water, there was no food, there was no vegetation, there was no way to sustain life. They were exposed to the elements. They were out in the wilderness, out in the wasteland, and all they had to do, or all they could do, was trust in God. Faith is what would carry them as a people. And God introduces them to this promise. He reestablishes his covenant. He, He makes with them a promise that now seems to be a bit different from the promise that he had made to Abraham. We find it in Exodus chapter 19, verses five and six, where he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, immediately, those who are familiar with the covenant that God made to Abraham there is now a tension, now a, a, a question that is raised. This new blessing, this new opportunity for, for reward now seems to be contingent on your ability to keep the commands that God has given. His promise to Abraham was a, was a promise that was dependent upon God himself, on his nature, on his power, on his ability to carry it through. And it was the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him to righteousness. That faith in God was what 
allowed him to enter into this relationship and to enjoy the benefits of the relationship that God established. Now things seem to be different. What is happening? And God through the Mosaic Covenant is trying to help them understand what faith really looks like. If Abraham believed God, then how was his legacy, how were his descendants, how were his offspring supposed to enjoy the benefits of faith in God and the relationship with God? And so God gives them a list of standards that that weren't just rules to keep. They were a reflection of his nature. They were meant to show the nations what God really looked like and they were to introduce the people of Israel to what faith really meant. And so now this new introduction of the standards and rules and obligations that they had as a people now bound them as a people then to enjoy the benefits of this relationship with God, this covenant relationship. But through the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant, God was trying to point them to something. What kind of faith would they need to have? And we see that through the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant, it wasn't about having perfect faith, but having faith in a perfect son. Because their faith, even Abraham's faith, was incomplete. Abraham's faith was broken. It was inconsistent. And yet it was his faith in God and faith in this son, this future seed, this one he didn't know yet who would be Jesus, who would take his sins on himself and make a way for Abraham to enjoy righteousness the righteousness of his future son, Jesus Christ, who would then be placed on him because of faith. And Israel would enjoy the benefits of that relationship the same way. They would come and experience the gravity of the standard. The, the, the law itself would be weighed down. It would, it would lead them to recognize that they could not have the kind of faith they needed to have to, to really enjoy this relationship. But it would only come as they would have faith in a perfect son. That was the point. Well, God leads them out of the wilderness of Sinai. God leads them into the promised land. God establishes them in the land of Canaan, this land of promise, and God raises up for them a king. King Saul, as you know, who started so well and finished so poorly. The inconsistency of Saul's heart really came to a head as it, as it, as it demonstrated a heart that was not truly committed to worship of God. And so when we're introduced to David, we come to recognize that what stands front and center that makes David's leadership so, so prominent is not that David is, the, is a great leader in himself, but that David is a one who is devoted to God. David has a heart that is devoted to God, and that is what makes him a great leader. David has learned to follow and submit himself to the great leader, the greatest leader, God himself. And so, as he's following after God, then he can lead God's people. Notice with me, if you have your Bibles open, I would encourage you to look with me at 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Again, on page 348 in your pew Bible. Here's how it starts. Here's the introduction, and here is the setting by which God will make significant promises and contractual uh, agreements with David. Notice it says, Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, 
I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. We recognize at the very beginning of of this passage that David's heart was devoted to God. David revered God. David desired for God to be in a place of reverence and worship. And so he makes worship the central focus for the people of Israel because worship is central for David. Immediately, we recognize the priority of worship in David's life. Up to this point, the Ark of the Covenant, which was really the the, the physical representation of the presence of God among his people, at this point, it was placed in a tabernacle. It was placed in a tent. That tent structure could could be portable. It It was able to be moved along with the people as they were moving through the wilderness. And now David wanted this fixture of worship to be located in a permanent way before the people so they could look to God for worship. If we back up, just flip a few pages to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, and you will see that this is where David is anointed king. This is kind of the the beginning of his reign. And he, he takes Jerusalem along with his mighty men. At the time, this city of Jerusalem was inhabited by the Jebusites, who were the inhabitants of the land. But this would become the capital city. This was the place, of course, where Abraham and Isaac had traveled many centuries before and where Isaac, uh, Abraham had offered Isaac on the sacrifice and said, God will provide a lamb. It was here. And fast forwarding into the future, it was just an illustration of what God would do in the very same place in Jerusalem. God would provide a lamb through his son, Jesus Christ, who would be the perfect lamb of God, who would pay for the sins of the world. From the very beginning, this is gonna be called the city of Zion. This is known as the city of God. This was going to be the the place where God's presence would reside, the center of worship, the center of the people of God as they would point the nations to worship God. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13, a couple of chapters later, David understands the significance of this kingdom, this kingdom that God was going to establish through him needed to align itself with God's perspective and and God's mission for the people. And if you remember, in the Mosaic Covenant, God was going to establish a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. If they were going to be a kingdom of priests, if they were going to point people to God and point people to worship, they needed to be a worshiping community. And God needed to be the center of them as a people, as a community. And so... Understanding the significance of this and understanding the brokenness of King Saul's reign, David commits in his heart. We see in 1 Chronicles 13, verse 3, David says, Let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. We have not been the kind of people that God has called us to be. We have not been a worshiping center. So let's bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem so that God can have central place, so God can have the place he deserves. And you know know the story. David goes with a band of priests and a group of individuals to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And on the way, the, 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 the oxen stumbles and the Ark of the Covenant almost falls off the cart. Uzzah puts his hand on the Ark and instantly 
God takes his life. He's killed because of the command that God had given to the people of Israel on how they, they should carry this Ark of the Covenant. So they delay their trip and allow the Ark of the Covenant to remain there in Obed-Edom for three months. In chapter 15, we see that, that David makes another attempt. This time, he is going to align his heart not only to a worship of God, but also to obedience to God. He needs to do things God's way, and, and that was the message. David, I, I appreciate your heart of wanting to make Israel and make Jerusalem the center of worship, but if, but if you're gonna be a figurehead of leading people into worship, you must be an example of obedience of worship. And so you need to do things my way, David, and so David aligns his heart to the commands of God, and we find in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles 15, 15, that the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded, according to the word of God. He needed to align his heart to the things of God. We find that there is singing. We find that there is sacrifice. And even in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13, we find that when those who had borne the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. At least in the first six steps, as they're carrying that ark of God, uh, the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem, there is sacrifice. They consecrate the journey with sacrifice, knowing that God is represented, his forgiveness is represented in sacrifice, the, the taking of a life of a lamb, of an ox. Some commentators suggest that every six steps along the way, there was a sacrifice of an ox and a fattened animal. 30,000 steps between Obed-Edom and Jerusalem. As many as 5,000 sacrifices may have been offered. 5,000 oxen and 5,000 fattened animals to consecrate this trip every step of the way to say we are aligning our hearts with what this represents. We are aligning ourselves with worship. His heart was ready. And when they finally get to Jerusalem, there are now seven bulls and seven rams that are sacrificed. And the ark is placed inside the tabernacle. Levites are appointed as ministers before the ark of the Lord, and David sings songs of thanks to God for allowing them to make this trip and to allow Jerusalem now to be the, the center of worship. Finally, Jerusalem is the place of worship that it was meant to be. David has a heart for God, and David wants to make worship in Jerusalem the center for the people of Israel. But this priority of David flows from a heart of worship. What, what allowed David to lead the people into worship was a worshiping heart. He was a man of worship so he could lead others into worship. You never get the sense of reading through David's story that he resented the path that God had put him on. You never get the sense from David's story that he was ever reluctant or resistant to what God was trying to accomplish in his heart to lead him and cultivate within him a heart of faith and a heart of worship. He's willing to tend the flock. He's willing to serve his brothers. He's willing to stand for God in the face of Goliath. He's willing to play music for the king, King Saul. He's determined to wait. He will not lift his hand against God's anointed, against King Saul. 
he had learned that there was no greater treasure than God himself. In the darkest moments of David's life before becoming king, he writes Psalm 34, and we can see a reflection of the heart of David in terms of worship, this heart of a one who is committed to loving God and then leading others into worship. Notice it comes out in these first several verses. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Why? Because those who seek the Lord get the Lord who is good. So those who seek the Lord lack no good thing because God is good. And God gives himself to those who seek for him and seek for him according to the scriptures. David has a waiting heart. David has a heart that's willing to submit to God, cultivating in his heart a heart of faith, a heart of worship, a heart of devotion. And so waiting in this struggle, God shows David that he is better. Friends, don't resist the struggle. Don't resent the waiting. Don't push back against the classroom of trial that God has introduced into your life. Don't succumb to the temptation of believing that God does not care. Embrace the trial. God is working. God is cultivating in your heart a heart of faith. Rejoice in the midst of trial so that patience can have its perfect work. Allow God to lead you to deeper devotion of him as he is allowing you in the waiting to see him more, to see that he is better. If we would ever lead our families in worship, students, if you will ever lead your friends to want and worship God, you must first be a worshiper of God. Cultivate in your homes. Cultivate in your lives, singles. Make God the priority for yourself so that you can introduce and welcome others to enjoy and partake of the goodness of God in the land of the living. If we would ever lead our friends to see that the Lord is good, then we must taste for ourselves that the Lord is good. What establishes David as a leader of God's people is not that his charisma, not his power, but his devotion and worship of God. And so God puts him in the forefront. David's first priority in this new kingdom was to point to God. So there's no wonder why God chose this moment. This moment to say, the future kingdom will look and embrace the same priorities. The future king will accomplish the same objectives. The future son will ultimately fulfill the desire that is in your heart, David. David's heart was devoted to God. We see, secondly, that God's promise to finish what he has started in David's life 
David, in following after God, was, was just emulating the work of God in his heart and life already. And, and, and as David is following after God, God will continue to, to fulfill and complete what he has started in David's life. We see that in verses 3 and 4 in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. It says, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. Now jump down to verse 10, second half. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. You're not going to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. God will build David a house. That's the promise. David, your heart is in the right place. You wait for the right things. You have the right priority. But I'm going to accomplish, I'm going to accomplish this project on my terms and in my own time, my own way. We'll find a sketch of God's plan of how he's going to work in David's life and how he's going to accomplish his purposes through David and through David's future son in verses 7 through 15. We find in verse 7, it says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies before you. David, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of how you got to where you are. I want you to remind, remind you that it did not happen through your strength. It did not happen through your initiative. It did not happen through your power. It did not happen through your ingenuity or your ability to pull this off in your, on your own. From start to finish, this has been about me building a house for you. You were nothing. <laughs> I pulled you as, from the pasture. I, I pulled you from the forgotten places. You had no notable heritage. You were not a son of Saul. You were the youngest, smallest, weakest, and littlest in your family. You were the least likely of all. And that was the purpose. That's why I set my affection on you. I set my affection on you because you were the smallest. And God doesn't look on the outward appearance, does he? God looks on the heart. And as we look at the at the story of God working in the heart of David. I hope you're encouraged this morning to know that however small you may think you are, however weak or feeble, how little you have to offer God, God delights in using little things to accomplish big things for him. Because then it's his power that's accomplishing it and he gets the glory in your life. As long as your heart is right. As long as your heart is devoted to the things of God, as long as you are inviting worship and devotion of God into your home, into your life. So God says, I'm going to establish a promise for you. Here is how this house will be established. In verse 8, second half, I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. 
when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Fourteen declarative statements that God uses in this covenant promise. Fourteen times where God says, I will accomplish for you on, based on my power and my will and my commitment, I will carry this through. I will make for you a name. I will appoint for you a place. I will plant you in this, in this land. I will subdue your enemies. I will build you a house. I will raise up your offspring. I will establish your kingdom. He will build me a house. I will establish his throne. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him. I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. 14 times, 14 promises that God makes that are dependent upon his power to carry it through. Notice that this covenant is a blending of the covenants before. In verse 8, when he says, I will make for you a name. Does that sound familiar? His promise to Abraham. I will make your name great. And now the promise is being strengthened through David. The the clarity now and the precision of this promise is is coming into, into the light. Verse 9, I will appoint for my people a place. I will plant them that they may dwell there. Reminiscent of to you and your descendants, I will give this land for an everlasting possession. Genesis 17, 8. Verses 10 and 11 and 12, where God says, I will build you a house. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me. Reminiscent of the promise to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. From you kings will come. And to Moses and Israel, I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Verse 13, I will be a father to him. He shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love for him. Reminiscent of, you will be a treasured possession. You'll be my own people. God was not removing the promises of old. God was strengthening them. He was not erasing these promises and starting over. He was building and renewing and confirming these promises. God was going to be faithful. He was going to build David a house, but he was also going to build a house for himself. God will build his own house. Of course, Solomon was the immediate fulfillment of these promises. We can look through 2 Chronicles and begin to see how these promises are taking shape. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1, Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. He gave him a great name. In verses 8 and 9, And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father. You have made me king in his place. Let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. God was showing his faithfulness to Abraham, showing his faithfulness to Moses, and now showing his faithfulness to David. 
Of course, Solomon would build a house. He would build a temple. God would give them peace in their territory. He would expand their lands and the the sovereignty of their nation, the authority and those other nations that would pay tribute to Israel. God would would give them peace uh, from their enemies. God would help them to be a nation that would demonstrate this kingdom, this kingdom of power and strength, a kingdom of God and a kingdom of worship. This was just the near fulfillment, though. This was the proof that Israel would need to say, God is faithful. Proof that would come before the rebellion. God would establish his promise to David knowing that there was going to be sin in David's life down the road. Significant sins. Sin against Bathsheba. Sin against Uriah the Hittite. Sin in taking a census. Sin in his reckless parenting. Sin by having many wives. But those sins were not going to interrupt and not going to overcome the promise of God to his man, David. We can rejoice in that. Psalm 89 speaks of this covenant promise to David and speaks of the covenant-keeping God who keeps promises in spite of sin. Psalm 89 verse 20 says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. And then we come to verse 30 and we begin to see the, the work of God in David and the promise-keeping nature of God in spite of sin. Verse 30 says, If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with the stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. I will be true to my promise. You can trust me. Those of us here who come to understand the significance of our sin, those of us here who recognize our brokenness and our fallenness before God, can rejoice in the fact that God will keep his promises to us. He will remain faithful to us and carry us to the finish line. God will keep us to the end, those who are being saved. God will build himself a house. And God will build a house for those who trust in him. I'm reminded of this truth found in Psalm 127, verse one. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. A lot of homes that are being built in this fellowship, a lot of families that are being built, a lot, of, a lot of futures that are being established. No future will succeed without first devoting that future to God. Unless the Lord builds the house, all of your efforts, all of your energy, all of your money and strategies and ingenuity will amount to nothing. Let the Lord build your house. And you will enjoy the benefits 
What God promises to David is as you see the Lord working in the midst of your frailty, as you see God working in the midst of your brokenness to accomplish his purposes as you devote yourself to him, God promises to finish what he started. And then we see the evidence of of that promise, the fulfillment of that promise in his son, Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of David. He is the fulfillment of this promise. We see at the very beginning of the New Testament in Matthew, the Gospels, as they they lay out the, the clear testimony of this fulfillment. Jesus, son of David, son of God. And Jesus came to put God at the center. That was the point of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is the, the first book of the New Testament. The, the writer Matthew, the disciple Matthew, wants to establish the entire purpose of, his, of this book, this letter. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's who I'm talking about. That's who is important. Jesus' life and ministry, that's what I want to feature in this gospel work. The first words you read in the New Testament speak of continuity. That God will keep his promises to Abraham. God will keep his promises to David. And Jesus is the proof, the evidence of that promise. Attention is given to Jesus as the one who has the right to rule. This genealogy in Matthew which traces the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham. And then we turn to chapter 2 and we begin to see the story of the wise men who are coming. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east when it rose and have come to worship him. Jesus, son of David, Jesus, the center of worship, we have come to recognize that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic promises and we understand our obligation to come and worship the king. And throughout the the testimony of Matthew, this title, son of David, continues to come to light. Attention is also given to this word kingdom throughout the gospels 126 times The gospel writers reference the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We discover that Jesus' coming brings some measure of reality to the presence of the kingdom in Christ. John the Baptist will say in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' ministry begins, and it says in chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In his first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, the, the theme of this sermon was to introduce true kingdom life and true kingdom living. Who are the subjects of the kingdom? Who are those who represent this kingdom community? Matthew 5, chapter, three, chapter 5, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in the model prayer, where Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And at the end of chapter 6, where he invites those who are true worshipers to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When Jesus sends out his disciples two by two in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, he says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in a very real sense, there is a kingdom aspect to the ministry of Jesus. But what kind of kingdom are we talking about? It's a kingdom that puts God at the center. It's a kingdom that prioritizes worship. It's a kingdom that introduces people to relationship with God through faith. It's the kind of kingdom that represents a devoted community who are worshiping the king. It's a spiritual kingdom and at the time of Christ, not a governing center, but a worshiping center. If God is ever going to reign on earth over a people who will represent him as a kingdom of priests, he must reign over a worshiping community. And that's why Jesus' ministry characterized the preaching of the good news that we see in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I was sent to call people through the gospel to enjoy relationship with God through faith in Jesus. The kingdom was present because the king was present. The kingdom was present because the message of the kingdom was present. The kingdom was present because the power of God was present to overcome demonic forces, to to mend broken bodies, to heal the blind, to raise paralyzed individuals, to offer, offer liberty to captives. And the kingdom had come because Jesus was making a people for himself, a covenant community. So the kingdom was present in the sense that the king was present. But the kingdom was yet to come, as we find, through the ministry of Christ, Jesus came to still fulfill the promises he had given to David. It was not just a spiritual reality, just like all the other promises in the Old Testament to Abraham and to Noah and to David and to Moses. There was a spiritual reality, but there was also a physical one. And so at the end of Jesus' public ministry, his disciples begin to ask him this question. They say in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When is your kingdom coming? You say the kingdom is present, but when will that kingdom come in actuality, in physicality? And after his death and resurrection, when the work of salvation had been accomplished, Incomplete, the church age had begun. The kingdom promise was still unmet, as we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus, in the 40 days after his resurrection, says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom that still was not yet present in its full reality the kind of kingdom that he had promised to David, the kind of kingdom that would be centered in Jerusalem as he had promised, the kind of kingdom that would have and exercise true authority over the nations. So the disciples 
certainly eager by this news of the preaching of the kingdom for 40 days, then begin to ask Jesus this question in verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. This would have been the moment for Jesus to say, you don't understand. The kingdom is not going to be physical. When will I get at that through your heads? Now Jesus confirms their assumption that God will fulfill the promise he had given to, to Isaiah and to David. He will establish his kingdom, but it just wasn't for them to know the timing. Yes, we believe that Jesus is exalted today. Yes, we believe that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Yes, we believe that Jesus is the sovereign one. We believe that he is the ultimate God of the universe, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. But there will be a time in which Jesus will establish his kingdom on the earth and we find that in Revelation chapter 20, verses one and three. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Finally, the head of the serpent is crushed. Finally, God exerts his authority over Satan and casts him into the pit. Satan's head is finally crushed according to the promise given to Adam. And now the promise to David we find in verses four and five. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. God will establish his throne. Jesus will come and express his authority on the earth. He will fulfill the promise given to David. He will reign. But the question for us this morning is the God of the universe, is the sovereign one reigning in your heart today? He is Lord. Whether you acknowledge him as Lord or not, he is Lord. Are you allowing him to be Lord of your life? Which means, are you allowing your life to submit to the standard that God has set in his word? Are you allowing your heart to follow in faith, believing what God says about himself? Have you bowed the knee, acknowledged your sins, confessed them to him, and asked for forgiveness? Uh, uh, understand that he is the only way of salvation. Have you come to the place of making Jesus your master? There is a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you haven't acknowledged that truth in your heart, may this be the day. May the Holy Spirit convict you of, of sin and your need for Jesus who is better. 
And might you bow your knee before the throne today and might your life be an expression of worship as, as you introduce the people around you in your workplace, in your community, in your family, as you introduce them to God who is better, the one you are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. May they see that in your life, a settledness, a confidence, a joy that is unspeakable, a peace that passes understanding, human understanding. May they see that God is supreme in your life. And might you lead them like David, lead them into relationship, lead them into devotion, lead them into worship as they see how God is leading you in your life to the Lordship of Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, may our lives represent a commitment, not just lip service. May our lives demonstrate a commitment to Jesus, devotion to you in worship making you central in our lives. Might you build our house, Lord. Might you lead us as a people. Might you give us opportunities to invite others into relationship and worship of the King, especially during this holiday. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good day.